You're listening to Pod Catalyst, the official podcast of IABC, where communicators from around the world tell their stories. Let's get started with today's episode. Hi, I'm Maliha Akil, and I'm chair of IABC's International Executive Board. And I believe that communication creates strategic advantage. Hi, my name is Kamyon Nafisi. I'm vice chair of IABC and I think communications creates impact. Hi, I'm Danielle Bond. I'm a consultant and company director, and I believe communication creates value for organizations. All right, well, this is very exciting to have all of you. So we have the current chair, Vice Chair of IAB and the past chair of the IAB. So thank you all for being available to talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about. So my first question is, over the last few years, we've seen a trend in communicators getting more and more influence. And I actually think there are a few different studies that point to this. I think Reagan also did one too. But Edelman 2023 Future Corporate Communication Study shared that half of CCOs consider themselves to be a strategic advisor to business leaders, compared to 35% in 2021. So what I'm curious to hear from all of you, because I know you probably have perspective on this, is how are you seeing this in action? And also how can we maintain this momentum? So we'd like to kick off. I was reading the study and I one of the things that I found interesting was that talk about the CCO and CEO relationship. But when I was working in corporate, my best relationships to get things done were with my peers. So it would be with the head of HR, the head of IT, because my team was responsible for digital. It would be with the procurement team, because my team was also responsible for technology tools, and we worked with our procurement to get them sourced. So I found like if I had a really great relationship with my peers at that level, by the time I got to the CEO with a decision, they were all backing me up. And so uh, you know, one of the things that I, I certainly think is that, yes, that strategic advisor role is increasing, but I think we need to be strategic advisors at our own level and with our peers, not just with the level above. And I'll pass it to Danielle because I know she jumped, wanted to jump in to say something too. Thanks, Malia. And look, I agree with the point that you're making. I think if I reflect back, having stepped down from a chief comms officer role last June. If I reflect back on my career, I would say most definitely in the prior five years, I was spending a lot more time as an advisor to the CEO and to the group executive. And I mean, that could have been an outcome of my experience and being more senior for sure. But I think the other factor is that, you know, COVID was certainly created a huge opportunity It was an unknown event and the chief executive was looking for advice on how to keep the business running and what role could communications play to help them navigate that crisis. And so I think that did create momentum right across the government and business community for comms functions. But it wasn't just that. I just think the world, the complexities of our world, the changing nature of stakeholders, the competition for talent, the evolving role of 24-7 news cycles and what that means for company reputation and the ability for leaders to advance their strategies 
I think, all became a moment for communications, the function of communications, but also just how do you be a good communicator as a leader? And so it is a good time for comms professionals to bring value to their organisations, but they do really need to be able to step into that role and become an advisor. Thanks so much, Danielle. I actually agree with a lot of what you were saying. And I think that communications professionals, you know, certainly are becoming more strategic in the way they perform their roles and, and more influential in companies. And, and actually in the same Edelman study, it does talk about how businesses generally are now more trusted in other groups such as media and government. So to your point, Danielle, I think it's a really opportune moment to be a, a communicator in business. And there's a real window of opportunity to help businesses create positive outcomes in the world. And when I think about communications professionals, you know, in their sort of strategic approach, I think there's really three things that come to mind. One is obviously comm strategy, one is business strategy, and then the other is sort of global awareness or macro awareness. And I think comm strategy, obviously, that comes with time and experience. Business strategy, I think it's incumbent on, on all business executives to kind of learn about the other disciplines in the C-suite so they can give better informed advice and make more informed decisions. So whether that's strategy as a, as a discipline or whether it's the other important disciplines, finance, operations, HR, sales, so you can have that well-rounded approach. But the third thing that's really interesting, as I mentioned just now, is global awareness or macro-awareness, which I think also picks up on, on what you were just saying, Danielle. I think it's it's a really interesting and challenging time now from that point of view. And I think one of the core functions of our profession now is to really act like a, a radar for the organization with regard to external risks and external opportunities and help the organization you know, calibrate and you know, recognize, calibrate and address those, those risks and, and opportunities. And, you know, I think we're seeing a long-term shift to corporate value being understood in terms of intangibles, whether it's brand, reputation, trust, R&D, you know, IP. And also we're seeing so many externalities on our radar, including obviously climate change, which is sort of the mother of all externalities. So I think a big part of our role is understanding and managing those externalities and those outside kind of risks and opportunities and helping the C-suite sort of shape its approach to those. When I was curious too, from, you know, Danielle, and, you know, because you were head of communications marketing, how would you challenge your CEO, you know, on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis, you know, and, and being in that role? Are there some examples that come to mind? I think you always want to challenge a CEO carefully, Peter, but I, I think that there's a couple of places where we can be super helpful and influential. And, and one is being part of strategy development. And so, you know, I think it's really important for organisations to build communications thinking into their strategy, not just can we do it, but should we do it? Mm -hmm. And if we're going to do it, how are we going to engage with stakeholders to win support for the strategy and then to use communication to effectively execute and also use communication to be responsive in an agile way as organisations are making progress in their strategies. So I think you've, if you're part of the strategy development, you have a seat at the table that can be quite influential. And then I think the other thing that you can do, and Cam and Malia both mention it, you do have to be attuned to what's happening in the world at large and potentially what it could mean. And so, I mean, some examples that occurred to me, my former organisation was pretty leading in innovation and pretty leading in understanding digital transformation. But when chat GPT dropped seemingly extremely quickly and then took off very quickly, whilst we knew it was coming, 
were we really as prepared for guiding our people, our employees, on how to use this tool? And so I stepped in quickly to give advice on how I thought we ought to go about explaining that. So being the, I don't know whether the weather vane's quite the right metaphor, but but acting as a weather vane and sharing some thoughts and insights and being alert to potential opportunity as well as risk and having a point of view that's helpful and sharing that with the CEO, but also peers. The influence that you can bring to some of these issues come about by having great relationships with other functions. I mean, the other example that I experienced was a cyber crisis and in we being prepared for it that it might come for at least a year and then indeed it did come and um, we were in a better position to respond as a consequence and the relationships we'd built across IT, across legal, across operations to that be prepared piece set us up for a better response than, than had it hit us as a surprise. And if I could just add, you know, one of the most important things is we shouldn't be waiting for someone to ask us what is happening in the world. I think we need to take every opportunity, every touch point to convey what we are seeing, even if it's something that is on the horizon, we're not sure what's going to be happening. I think we need to flag it. I remember when COVID started, I had just started a new job and I was seeing all the headlines around the world of COVID shutdowns coming, things spreading. And in my company, no one was talking about it. And I went to my, at that point, the VP, and I said, I think we really need to start talking about what happens when COVID comes to Canada and what are we going to do? Because the company was very traditional. Everyone worked out of the office and they really could not imagine anything else. And I think it's our job that when we see headlines or when we read an interesting story that another brand has done in terms of how they've managed communication, that we take that knowledge and share it with the CEO, with our peers, and do it proactively rather than waiting for someone to say, oh, so tell me what's happening in the world of climate change these days? Because if you're not speaking up, then you've already lost that voice around the table. Well, I guess I, conversely, too, I, mean, I was thinking, like, when do you counsel restraint on a particular topic, you know? So if you want the organization to speak out on something or to have a position or not have a position, maybe publicly speaking, you know, what's been your advice and kind of walking that line? I'm kind of biased because my entire doctoral research is on this topic. <laughs> yeah. um, but I've, I've always believed that you take a position if it aligns with your company's values and the actual actions that it takes. Taking a position on a popular topic when everything your business does goes against what that issue is, is just disingenuine. And so for me, it's always been about looking at your purpose, looking at your, your values and looking at how your business actually does business. And if there is a misalignment, then the council would be to exercise caution and not say anything that could come back and hurt you more than actually just saying something. And if I could just jump in there, just on the back of what Malia was saying, it's actually very interesting because, you know, we talked about the, the Edelman report a little, bit, a little bit earlier. There's another great report out there by the consultancy Tenio. And I think we're kind of awash, by the way, right now, with, you know, annual reports and surveys of the, of the year ahead from different entities. But the report by Tenio talks about purpose and I think specifically about ESG. 
They surveyed global CEOs and, and they found that 92% of global CEOs, they want to stay the course on ESG despite all the political headwinds. But the majority of them actually said they wanted to make some kind of change to how they operate in that area, including being more cautious about their external comms with regard to ESG. So to Milia's point. And for me, you know, just to riff on what Malia was saying, you know, I always have like a three-part kind of framework to this. I always think that if you're kind of looking at an ESG issue or a purpose issue, there's really three things to bear in mind. One is, does the topic align with your purpose statement and your materiality assessment you've also done? So in other words, does it align with your values? You know, as Malia was saying, that's number one. Number two, can the company speak with some form of integrity about that topic, either because it's kind of obviously in its scope of work or it's done things in the past to give it credibility in that space. That's number two. And then sort of number three, last but not least, can actually make an impact as well? Or is it just adding to the noise? So that's the framework I always find very helpful. I think the other thing to think about when it comes to advising on these societal issues, and I agree with everything that Cam and Malia have said, it might be that it's still highly risky to go out on your own as an organisation and you know, genuine concern by the board on the impact of the public position that you might take. There are other ways to, you can go to your industry association, you can go more collectively with a group of peers to contribute to commentary on a societal issue. You don't have to go on your own. There are other ways to tackle it. But, you know, I can see in the public discourse at the moment that there's a bit of pushback over DEI, there's a bit of pushback happening around, you know, hybrid working, flexible working, working from home. I mean, those are the the throws of debates that happen and we could all comment on why we think that might happen. But I counsel to a CEO is if those are important to your organisation and they create value for your organisation, you should stick with it. But you do need to be conscious of the environment in which you are operating and there are ways to, you know, when, when I was reading last week, there was an article in one of the major business papers in Australia and I was reading commentary that the hybrid working, working from home has led to a drop in productivity. I mean, my advice to an organisation who, well, actually, that's really important to us, I would pull together stats and facts that show that there hasn't, in fact, been a drop in productivity and be ready to not just take a position for a position's sake, but put it in a business context and prove the case for that position that you're taking. And, I mean, if it's if it's not provable, then you probably should revisit the position, right? But if it is provable and you can show that it's adding value, then use that information in your communications. So just to switch gears a little bit, I want to talk about IABC because all of you have, well, Danielle just rolled off the board, but Cam and uh, Malia, as I said before, are uh, currently on the board. And from where you sit, just in terms of the IABC community, where have you seen it evolve and what are you excited about for this year ahead? And it could just be the profession in general, but what are some things that, that you've seen in terms of how we've evolved and, and some things that are way ahead that are exciting to you? I sometimes think back to when I joined the profession, not necessarily just IABC, and it was very rare for someone to have a communication degree, let alone like even like certificate of communication, PR, et cetera. Like, I don't think they existed in quite the way they do now. And what I've found interesting in the last 10, 15 years is there's almost like new communication professionals that are coming into our world, but they actually have the theoretical background in communication. 
And I think where IABC can play a role, and it does play a role, but I think we can probably do more of is help those professionals bridge that gap between theory and practice. Because often when you start working in communication, you realize that, you know, you may understand the theoretical, but no one else around you does. And speaking that language doesn't really help. So you have to find a way to talk in the way that everyone else around you talks. And I think we've, as IABC, we've done a good job so far of understanding that and doing programming that supports some of it. But I, I get excited when I think about the next couple of years and doing more of it, because as we get more new members joining, new professionals joining, I think the feedback we get from them will help us be more effective as an association in helping them meet what their career needs are. Danielle, Cam, anything to add there? Well, I'm always excited by the potential of IABC. I mean, it remains my go-to network. People that I've met through the association, I remain connected to. It's where I go to for thought leadership. So that network is something that always has even greater potential to deliver value. And I encourage anybody who is looking to hone their skills and to have a professional community that challenges you and that is generous in sharing insights and learning to consider IABC because you won't regret the decision. Thanks, Daniel. Absolutely. I think the direction we're going in as IABC is really exciting. So I think a, a couple of years ago now in 2022, we launched the Organisational Design Task Force, which obviously Danielle was hugely instrumental in and, and helped lead which is really all about considering how do we operate better in terms of our structure and our, our operations. We've made some great strides uh, in that area. It's obviously a multi-year process, but we've begun to, I think, produce that or build that really strong foundation to then increasingly focus on what, what really matters, which is member value. And that's an area that I'm really excited about in general, but also kind of going into this new year. And actually this board year, we launched a brand new membership committee to look at ways we can improve membership growth and membership experience. And it's a work in progress and we have a number of recommendations, but a couple of, well, a number of themes are emerging, but a couple of really exciting themes, I think, for me that I'd love to kind of progress during the course of this year is, you know, number one, to make sure that we continue to have really great programming that genuinely spans, you know, all the disciplines of comms. Because I think one of the key differentiators of IABC is we represent all communicators and all disciplines in every part of the world. And we, we don't have a bias towards one discipline or one country or one region. And we'll continue to drive membership growth and diversity of membership across disciplines and markets and countries. So that's number one. And then and another piece, number two, I think, to Malia's point just a moment ago, is actually doubling down on the value proposition for, for students and early career professionals and to sort of place more emphasis on, on programming for those groups. So I think just in those two areas and, and many others, which we probably don't have time to talk about now, there's lots of exciting prospects and opportunities for the year ahead. I guess from a you know, maybe a, a more personal or professional perspective, and what are some things that you all want to learn more about this year? You know, I, I know we're lifelong learners, and I know Emily you know, is in the midst of her doctoral dissertation, so I'm sure <laughs> that was be the primary focus. But I'm just curious to hear from all of you. I know you all live very busy lives, but what are some things that, you know, and, and I guess also just to draw on the IBC community this year that, that you think will be uh, worthwhile? Well, I'm happy to put my hand up to say that I have got to master artificial intelligence and how to use it more effectively in my practice. 
I think that's a challenge for everybody, but I'm really committed to getting across some of the new tools that I know will make my life easier. That's one topic that I want to double down on, and I saw there was an event coming up, which I'm going to join on that. Um, Look, the other one is I've recently uh, am joining a company board in the aged care sector, and I'm looking to transition my operational comms experience into that board role and see how I can help the organisation strategically around communications and stakeholder engagement. So that will be a big learning for me and uh, that's what I'm looking forward to in 2024. Oh, yes, my doctoral studies are taking up all of my <laughs> knowledge time. But I will say like part of that doctoral study is looking at purpose and purpose-driven economy, which I'm getting more deeper into and I'm starting to, to question my my lifelong commitment to capitalism at times. I think anyone I've ever talked to, I said I am a hardcore capitalist and a part of me still is. But I think as I go through this journey, what I'm starting to realize is that there's there's different ways to approach your business and how you run a business. And purpose is part of it, but I think it goes broader than that. And it really is looking at what is the role of business and society. And there's a shift happening, not necessarily just within employees, but there's a shift happening in leadership because you're starting to see more leaders coming up from Gen X, from millennials. And even in some companies, there are Gen Z who are leading their companies and they have a very different mindset about what a business does and what the role of business is in society. And I think that shift towards that social purpose side is something that really has fascinated me, which is why I chose to research it. But for me, this next year is going to be really diving deep into that and looking at it from the perspective of customers and really like looking at different companies and different industries to say, okay, how does this happen? And I think for that, as I think about it, I'm always like, I need to really reach out to my network in IABC for companies that I would like to study and reach out to people I know in those companies or who may connect me to companies that might be suitable for my research. And I think that for me is, has always been the power of IBC. Like I can literally just go to my LinkedIn connections and say, okay, who do I know here or who has connections that I can leverage? So for me, that learning piece this year is very much about continuing social purpose. For me, artificial intelligence was last year. <laughs> so I feel like I feel like I got that one down. Now it's about just focusing on this piece. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking that for me, I think this year, a big focus is the kind of global and macro awareness part that we talked about earlier. So being that radar function to help your organization understand and shape responses to all these kind of big externalities out there. And I think a really big part of that is geopolitics. I think geopolitics is an area that, you know, unless you're obviously in government and public affairs, obviously, unless you're in that area, geopolitics has not traditionally been on the agenda of most comms professionals. And I think geopolitics is obviously so key to understand some of these bigger themes. So that's an area that I'm really still trying to go deeper in this year. And there's a couple of go-to sources that I'd really recommend. I mean, there's a book I'm actually working my way through at the moment by Helen Thompson, who's a professor of political economy at Cambridge University. And the book is actually very accessible. It's called Disorder. I think it's Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And she kind of really charts, you know, how it is we got to where we are today in terms of our geopolitics in the West. And it's full of interesting insights. I mean, for example, she talks about how this is a very volatile, complex, you know, uncertain period we're in right now is actually maybe not an anomaly at all. That in fact, most of history has actually been that way. 
and the post-war period we've all recently lived through a relative peace and prosperity, that was actually the anomaly. And actually what we're living through now is close to how history generally is. So it's a bit of a depressing prognosis, but at least it helps you understand where we are and prepare. And then the other sort of go-to source is Ian Bremer, who's kind of very active on Twitter and LinkedIn, who's a uh, runs a geopolitical risk consultancy. And, and he has insightful and occasionally quite ir- irreverent takes on geopolitics. But I'm really enjoying his work to better understand geopolitics. So that's definitely one of the things on my to-do list this year to learn more about that piece. Yeah, it's interesting. I read an article, it was like a month or two ago. I think it was in the New York Times. It was about organizations taking a bigger role in like basically like teaching employees about civics or civic engagement. It was just interesting. It was kind of this, you know, discussion over like the shift that organizations are taking more of a responsibility in that area. Not necessarily to take a partisan view, but just that getting people to understand the fundamentals of, I guess, how governments work. But I was just kind of an interesting, and I don't know if that's, this was focused on the U.S. primarily, but I thought that was really interesting, you know, just trying to educate employees on some of those things and organizations taking a greater responsibility in that area. Daniel, it looked like you were going to say something. Well, there were a couple of things I was reflecting on. One was in a post-truth world, which I guess we're probably arguably in or scarily could be in. I think that what's really important is to just read widely and really be quite intentional about stepping outside of your silo bubble of your usual sources of information to just go challenge yourself to get a real sense of what's going on. I agree with both Cam and Malia that we really do need to think more broadly about the world and how it's impacting our organisations and 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 people and how people are feeling in this world and, you know, climate anxiety is real and, you know, I'm not sure that business can really address gaps in civics. I think that has to come through through community and government more so, but sure, business can do its part. I was thinking about where do I go for sources of information and promises I've made to myself in the new year. So I like to follow from a comms perspective. I really like to follow Frank Shaw, who's the Chief Communications Officer at Microsoft. He's terrifically generous in sharing what his team is doing. There's potentially a conflict of interest in terms of Microsoft and AI, but he genuinely is experimenting and sharing what they find out when they are using these tools. And so I think he's definitely worth a follow on LinkedIn if you aren't already. There's a guy in Australia I like to follow called Roger Christie, who is very interested in digital reputation and working with leaders uh, in that digital space. And I enjoy following his He's very generous, again, with sharing his insights and research. He's done some recent work on government leaders and their use of digital, and not politicians, more government bureaucrats and how they use it to advance policy. So very interesting. I've sworn to stay off X, formerly known as Twitter, more because it just increases my sense of anxiety and and I find it very difficult to stay outside of my silo bubble. So that's my New Year's resolution. I have a tip to share for for anyone listening on if you're broadening what you're reading, beware of algorithms. And I found a way to game the algorithm where if I read something from the right, I automatically read something from the left. And I confuse every single algorithm on every platform because I don't want algorithms to put me in a box and only show me content that will be in a bit of that echo chamber where I only read things that confirm what I already know. 
And so ever since like I started like kind of digging deep into how all the algorithms work and some of it like uh, digital marketers will target, but the rest of it is just the way that social media works and not just social media. I think a lot of the news platforms as well, whether you use Apple News or anything else. And so what I started finding was that I was only seeing things that validated my own point of view. And so I started reading things that were from other types of publications that I may not necessarily agree with, but I wanted to see what they were saying. And that's when I started noticing that I was being fed more of that versus the other. So last year, I decided I'm just going to balance all of it. And if I read one, I will read the other until the algorithm has no idea which line I fall under and it will show me everything <laughs> that I need to see. And if I don't see it, then I was looking for it. But I think to Danielle's point, you do have to broaden your horizons and you have to challenge your own views and your own way of thinking and also just your own worldviews and, and really ask yourself, like, what is truly happening in the world and how does this align to what I know? But also more importantly, what do I not know? about why certain issues are bubbling up more than others. And just to add to that, actually, that's a really interesting point, Malia, about trying to kind of be conscious of where the algorithms are taking you. But the other thing that's somewhat similar to that is that I always find it really useful to read things that are sort of not necessarily written by our own profession. So, you know, we talked about some of the great reports that are out there, Edelman and Tenier, we mentioned earlier, and they're all great pieces of work, but it's often helpful to read stuff from a different context. So, for example, Alison Taylor, who's a professor at NYU Business School, she's very active on LinkedIn, and she specializes in corporate responsibility and business ethics, and all her contents about, you know, many of the topics that are really essential to the comms professionals, so strategy, sustainability, you know, political and social risk, culture and behavior, you know, all that kind of stuff, and, and also how you tie all that together. But what's interesting is she's fairly skeptical about the role of comms people, in this case, in the context of purpose, ESG, sustainability. She's quite a vocal critic around greenwashing, which, of course, we know, unfortunately, does happen. But you know, on the whole, comms people, of course, play a really crucial role in whether it's in purpose, ESG, sustainability, and ensuring that, you know, we shape that, we ensure engagement around it, acceptance around that. But, you know, she has a very skeptical view. So basically, rather than read lots of material from our own profession on that topic, it's really useful to read something that sort of challenges you and helps sharpen your thinking. And it kind of provides a level of constructive challenge that you can use for improvement. So that's something I'd definitely recommend. I do think it's important to reflect on what we've just been discussing about algorithms and recognising that mm. inside of our organisations, that's exactly how the people that we're trying to communicate with are also feeling. And so, you know, we have to translate that into our own professional practice. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is what you said at the beginning of the conversation, Malia, about your effectiveness was partly around the strength of your relationships with peers in other functions. And I think that will be increasingly important. I feel that formal corporate communications work will shift quite a bit and that we should be spending more time working with executives and managers and leaders of other functions to build their own communication capability and that that is built into their way of approaching things and doing things and that formal corporate communications may become increasingly less effective perhaps because they're less trusted perhaps because our audience is distracted and overwhelmed with information. And so what does an organisation do in that context? Well, I think you have to rely upon your managers, your leaders, your influences inside organisations to carry that 
strategic message, that company message. And so more work there, I think. And I think that's going to be increasingly a new discipline. You know, change comms is really important, but it's been, you know, a lot of it's been focused around technology transformation and the like. But actually, that capability really needs to be brought to many other parts of organisational operations. And so, you know, I think that's an exciting area, but it perhaps is going to be relying less on our core comms capabilities and more on some other skills that are as important and might prove more effective. In my uh, last corporate role, every time I gave a presentation on what my department did, I used to say that our job is to convene the organization around particular issues, particular campaigns, programs, et cetera. And our job is to enable everyone else to do their job well. And the reason I was used to say that was because exactly to your point, Danielle, like if we are only focusing on sending out the message and talking to inside the organization, to stakeholders outside the organization, I'm not sure how much effective we can be in the long term. But if we start maybe perhaps being less territorial about our role, then we do require different skill sets. We need to learn to be more diplomatic. We need to have more negotiation skills so that when we are convening and we are enabling, we're actually constantly building those relationships and maybe even shaping those relationships in a way that benefits the whole. And it becomes less about our individual accomplishments. And I'm not saying they're not important, but it becomes more about what do we collectively achieve as a whole for the organization? Because that way you show the leadership that you are a team player and you are putting the organization first. And you're doing that by practicing XYZ skills, which are not necessarily that I'm a good writer or I'm a good project manager, but rather that I'm someone who can negotiate with everyone else around me to achieve the goals that we've set out to achieve. Well, that was very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I really only have one last question here, and uh, we ask it with every interview. What gets you up in the morning? Lots of coffee, and that's it. <laughs> Lots of coffee. I think with Danielle, it used to be IBC meetings, right, Danielle? It was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's coffee as well and Wordle. I mean, I don't, it's the very first thing I do after my coffee is get on my Wordle and then I do my Quirtle. I'm a, I'm a comms geek, what can I tell you? But it does get my brain engaged around something I love, which is language and words. Yeah, I think in my case, coffee is definitely a key to the process, but but more seriously, I think you're just kind of reflecting personally on on my sort of you know professional journey. I, you know, having founded our consultancy a few years ago and previously having worked in house, I think what kind of really gets you up in the morning is basically working with great clients on on great work. So, you know, having founded our consultancy, we've been really lucky in being able to really cherry pick our work. You know, first of all, in terms of working with clients with strong integrity, and then secondly, you know, doing work that's really meaningful. So, I think for me, that's it. You know, great clients, great work, keep me happy. I will say, like, I, I always uh, look at my calendar before I go to bed because I like to, like, in, in some ways noodle on it while I'm sleeping so that when I do wake up, I know exactly what I'm going to accomplish. I tried so many different online project management softwares, and after a while, I just found them onerous to work with because it felt like I spent more time 
putting things I have to get done there. So I resorted back to my traditional take a piece of paper, write down like the three things I want to get done today and just literally cross them off every time I get something accomplished. Because I found that when I was creating really long to-do lists, I just never got anything done because it felt overwhelming. So I, I literally will start the day going like, here's the three things I need to get done today. And if I can get them done, it doesn't matter if I get them done by three o'clock, by five o'clock, by seven o'clock, I get them done, then I've had a good day. And also one of the things I've found is I have to be kind to myself. When I worked in-house, I don't think I was kind to myself and I let myself get stressed and always felt like I had to be delivering 110% every single time. And in the last couple of years, I've told myself, be kind to yourself. So every time I wake up in the morning, I'm like, okay, be kind to yourself. If you don't get something done, that's okay. Because we literally are in a profession where it's not life or death. And when you're kind to yourself, you actually give yourself permission sometimes to take a break and enjoy your Wordle. I'm getting into connections now, Danielle. So connections and Wordle. I love love connections. (laughs) Those are my two things while I'm having coffee. (laughs) But I think that to me is important that in a way, the self-care and mental health for yourself, all the work stuff, it will get done. But I think that mental health and self-care is so important, particularly first thing in the morning. If you wake up stressed, the rest of the day is just not going to be good. Have you read that book, Checklist Manifesto? Atul Gawande writes for The New Yorker. It's a great, it talks kind of about what you mentioned there. Yeah. um, Does it say to throw out the checklist? Is that what it's all? (laughs) <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, he talks about different professions that use checklists. So like if you're a pilot, or in his case, he's a doctor, medical doctor. So, but the importance of them and using them. But yeah, it's it's, an, it's a good read. I'm very glad that pilots and doctors are so disciplined. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like it is really comforting yes. that uh, they do that. Yes. And look, I agree with you, Malia. I do think that there comes a point where you kind of understand the nuance of how to do most projects. But when I have found myself desperately in need of a better organised teammate has been in times of those really huge projects with unrelenting deadlines. And I'm never going to be that person that manages the project plan, but I'm enormously grateful for having that person on the team because they add huge value. I think sometimes also it's a matter of sort of, you know, finding the right in this case, the right comms discipline for your personality and your approach. So having done lots of different comms jobs over the years, I think some, like if you're in a media relations or PR job, certainly for certain clients, there's so much immediacy and intraday work. And it's not really about arguably about planning. It's about, you know, in the moment, responding to things quickly, accurately, correctly. And it's almost a bit adrenaline fueled. And then, you know, having been in more Marcoms roles or internal comms roles, that often require kind of, you know, you know, very rigorous long-term planning. That's a different mindset too. So I think it can help if you can find yourself in the right discipline as well. That can help a lot. Well, thank you all. I've learned a lot. I really appreciate your time and thanks so much. And it's also a pleasure working with all of you being on the board. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Malia. Thanks, Cam. Thanks for listening to Pod Catalyst, the official podcast of IABC. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. 
Have a suggestion for a future episode? Send us a note at catalyst at iabc.com. To discover all IABC has to offer, visit our website at iabc.com. Until next time.